So last week, God, by the prophet, said all sorts of bad things about what was going to happen to Babylon. So we're in chapter 14, and what we'll do is now we'll switch from God speaking against Babylon, and we'll go to what God says Israel is going to say against Babylon. So Babylon doesn't escape, but we're continuing. So chapter 14, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So several things. First thing, of course, is the Lord will put Jacob and Israel, and I'm assuming that's reunited Israel, back into their land. When they are back in their land, sojourners will join with them, much like what happened in the Exodus, where as Israel left exile in Egypt, they picked up a mixed multitude that went with them. They have always had sojourners so that you have sojourners there. Then, in verse 2, the peoples will take them, and in this case, them is Babylon. And the peoples will take them, Babylon, and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. In context here, the ones who have been their captors and the ones who have ruled over them are Babylon. Could be broader than that. Certainly entirely possible that we could be talking about Babylon and Assyria and Rome and several other empires that have swashed through there. But at least Babylon is what we're talking about because the context previously was that Babylon had been judged for the way they treated Israel in captivity. One of the things that I've said in the past and probably we're saying again, God, when he wants to deal with his people Israel, will whistle up an empire and will use that empire to chastise or send into exile his own people. So at that point, that empire is doing what God set it up to do. However, in virtually every case, what happens is the empire engages in what would be called in football unnecessary roughness. Rather than just moving them off into exile like God wanted them to do, they, in fact, go farther than that. Interestingly, Kay and I were watching a series at Hillsdale College about World War II by Victor Davis Hanson. He's very good, by the way. If you have access to an internet, it's free. You have to register, which means that they'll periodically send you propaganda material, but they're benign. He was talking about the Nazis as they were going through Eastern Europe and they never got as far as the Ural Mountains, so they didn't technically get to Asia. And his comment was, the Nazis killed far more people than was necessary to meet their military objectives. And they did. I mean, in addition to being high on ideology, a lot of them were speed freaks. That was about the time when amphetamines were invented, and amphetamines were available over the counter in Germany. They were known, for example, as Mother's Afternoon Little Picker-Upper. So lots of them were speed freaks. 
literally. But in that process, they engaged in what God would call unnecessary roughness. They killed far more people than was necessary simply to meet their military objectives. So the same thing happens with Assyria and with Babylon, and some of the nations that surround Israel as they've gone into exile, and God gets grumpy with them all and says, because of the way you behaved when I was dealing with my people Israel, I am going to deal harshly with you. So in this first two verses of Isaiah 14, what God is saying is, I'm going to bring Israel back to their land. There are going to be sojourners who join themselves to Israel, but I'm also going to bring back I am assuming the Babylonians in context, but it could be Babylonians, Assyrians, Germans, all sorts of people who have oppressed Israel as they have been in exile. And those people will be male and female slaves in Israel. The proximate context here is Babylon, but it could be broader than that. It just, the grammar doesn't tell me that. So verse 3, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. We had Babylon before the beginning of 14. We have Babylon again. So I think it's fairly safe to assume that Babylon are the male and female slaves that are brought in later. So you will take up this taunt against Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. So what he's saying is, Babylon, when you were riding high, you not only took us out, but you took other peoples out. And you were arrogant and so forth. And of course, we know from the book of Daniel, when Daniel was taken off to Babylon during the captivity of Judah, that historical context, Isaiah is writing before and during the destruction of the northern kingdom. The Babylonian conquest of Judah is yet 120 some odd years in the future. So as we're talking about the insolent fury of Babylon, understand that from Isaiah's perspective, that is yet future. Because at the time Isaiah was living, Babylon wasn't a big deal. Remember we talked last time that there's two incarnations of Babylon. There's the old Babylonian empire, which is back around the time of probably Abraham or Moses. I don't remember the precise dates and I didn't look them up, but you can. The most famous name in that Babylon is Hammurabi. And Hammurabi was the king and he was a lawgiver and he in most secular histories is regarded as being a lawgiver on a par with Moses. But that's the old Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar is the new Babylonian Empire. That empire is not going to rise for better than 100 years from Isaiah's perspective. And that's the empire that is being talked about here because they're the ones that conquer Israel and so forth. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. And again, the idea here is now that this empire has been taken out, everybody is joyful. Where else do you see that? I'm talking about yet future. Babylon again. Remember Revelation, Babylon, Babylon is fallen. 
and all the merchants of the earth, their captains of the ships are looking at the burning and they're wailing and lamenting, but there breaks out jubilation in heaven when Babylon goes down. So it is entirely possible that Babylon literally may be rebuilt. The other possibility is Babylon represents a system of government that follows power. So if you read in Revelation, the whore of Babylon sits on seven hills. Well, at the time the Bible was written, the city that sat on seven hills that was the head of an empire was Rome. So there is speculation that Babylon is a spiritual entity, if you will, that follows the seat of secular empirical power. And in fact, when we get down here a little ways, one of the things that you'll see is there's going to be a shift. And he's going to be talking to the king of Babylon, and all of a sudden it becomes very obvious he's not talking to the king of Babylon anymore. Let's go ahead and read, and when we get down there, we'll talk about this some more. So verse 7, again, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. And in Revelation, there's jubilation in heaven when Babylon gets taken out. Verse 8, the cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. And cypress and the cedar are symbols of Lebanon or Syria, which would have been taken out in the process of Nebuchadnezzar coming down. Because in order to get to Israel from Babylon, you have got to go north and then swing west and then come down south through modern-day Syria and Lebanon. Verse 9, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. So as Babylon is going down to Sheol, what he's finding there is all the kings who have preceded him in death are there waiting for him. So it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp has brought down to Sheol the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. We know from the book of Daniel that God took his kingdom away from him for a while and made him crawl on his hands and knees and eat grass like an ox until he got the word that God was in fact in charge and he was not. And of course we know his grandson, Belshazzar, also was full of pride and was brought down. In fact, he was killed the same night as the banquet where the handwriting showed up on the wall. All right, now, this, this is where we shift. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. At this point, maybe a bit ambiguous. You might still be talking about an exalted earthly king, but you notice the shift, how you are fallen from heaven. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Everybody that I know who reads this regards that the subject has shifted from the king of Babylon 
to Satan. One of the things that happens if we go to Revelation 12, down to verse 7. A war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That should take you, beginning of the book of Job, you have Satan coming into the throne room of God. And what does he do? He accuses Job and says, yeah, I mean, Job worships you, but you've got a fence around him and I can't touch him. Let me get my hands on him and he'll curse you to your face. Job was probably contemporary with Abraham from everything I have read, given the stuff that's going on in the book and so forth. Scholars believe that Job might have been contemporary with Abraham. And at least at the time of Job, it appears that Satan is still in heaven. In Isaiah, we see how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. And notice what it says in Revelation. In Revelation 14, you have another angel, a second following, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So, back to Isaiah. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. So the idea here is, in both of these cases, the spiritual power behind Babylon is Satan. And that doesn't go away until Revelation. Nobody knows for sure whether we're going to actually rebuild physical Babylon on the Euphrates, and that's what we're talking about, it's certainly possible, or whether it's the seat of human empire which travels with the seat of power. So then we have the five I wills and so forth. Pick it up at verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out, away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced with the swords who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. So we have kings of the earth who are lying in Sheol in honor. They have been buried with honor. They are in honored places in their graves, if you will, in Sheol. Satan comes down. They rise up and look at him and say, are you the one that screwed everything up? And he is not going to be buried in an honored place. He is going to be cast out like a corpse thrown into a pit, as opposed to a king who is buried in state. So it shifts back and forth between being the literal king of Babylon and being Satan. 
And of course, we know from Revelation that when Satan is cast down, Yeshua imprisons him in Sheol. And at the end of the thousand year reign, he is released from his prison and comes back up to tempt the nations again. This little chunk of Isaiah, if you will, sort of shifts between 100 years in the future from Isaiah to future from us yet. This is a teaching I think I have heard from Chuck Missler a decade ago. Take this for whatever it is. This is Misslerism that I am now repeating to you, so it's Johnnyology, okay? Missler's idea was that what the thousand-year reign and the release of Satan at the end proves is that evolution is a lie. In other words, we are not getting better. Even after a thousand years, under the direct sovereignty of Yeshua himself on earth, humanity does not improve. We are still the same creatures we were in the garden, which means that liberalism is a lie because liberalism is based on the premise that if we just have the right programs in place, we can make everybody better. We can make the world better. That's what liberalism, socialism, communism, Nazism, Maoism, all of the variations on that theme believe that human action and human government can perfect people. What the release of Satan after a thousand years of perfect government, because Yeshua is the perfect governor. So after a thousand years of perfect government, the nations are still able to be tempted to rise up in rebellion against the Messiah and come against Jerusalem, which indicates that we haven't changed. The rebellion comes at the end, after a thousand years. There are certainly people who will have rebellion in their hearts. No question about that, because Satan will be able to fan it into flame instantly. But at least as I understand it, he rules the nation with a rod of iron which is to say he doesn't permit any rebellion, which is what liberalism, socialism, Maoism, communism, all that kind of stuff do is they rule everybody with a rod of iron with the intention of perfecting them. And what that says is that's not possible. That's the best explanation I have heard. This could also be the final weeding out, that once Yeshua lets up and lets Satan go again, there will be people who will make choices. Some will choose to stay with him, and some will choose not to. It also indicates that people will always have free will, because we will be able to rebel. And interestingly, since we're on that topic, the rabbis are of the opinion that in the new heaven and the new earth, free will will be done away with, because it will have served its purpose by then. And the purpose that it will have served would be the weeding out. Those who have chosen to follow Yeshua have made their decision, so for them, free will is no longer particularly useful. For the ones who have decided against Yeshua, they're in the lake of fire, so it doesn't matter. It's rabbinic, you do with that whatever you want, but their perspective is in the new heaven and the new earth, free will really doesn't have any use anymore because the thing for which it was important has been accomplished. Now, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced with the swords who go down to the stones of the pit. 
like a dead body trampled underfoot. I will gently suggest that an adjuration like that could apply to Stalin, could apply to Mao Zedong, could apply to Adolf Hitler. They are kings of the earth, if you will, and what they have done is they have destroyed their own people in pursuit of power and of vision. So 20 and a half. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. So not only is the king of Babylon or Satan or whoever he is going to lie in dishonor, his progeny is also going to be weeded out. It's sort of like kill it and go back and find the nest and burn it. I mean, that's pretty literally what it's saying. Their evil is endemic, not situational. Verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, says the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water. And I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Pretty starchy. So now we're going to switch from Babylon to Assyria. Now remember I led off this discussion this evening where Israel returns to its land and is going to take as slaves those nations that mistreated her. So the first one we just dealt with was Babylon, which as I say from Isaiah's perspective is 120 some odd years in the future. Assyria is more immediate. So Assyria is the one that's going to take out the northern kingdom. 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? And of course, we know historically that, in fact, the wave of Assyria, if you will, broke at Jerusalem. They took out the northern kingdom, and they came down and took another shot and tried to take Jerusalem and couldn't do it. And that was sort of the end of the Assyrian Empire. Verse 28, we've taken the two major empires, Babylon and Assyria, that have destroyed Israel. And now what we're going to do is we're going to deal with the surrounding nations who were sort of bit players in this pageant. This is the translator's note. It's an oracle concerning Philistia. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Remember Ahaz was the king who was threatened by reason and Remaliah where Isaiah had to go up to the pool and calm him down because he was panicked because uh, both Ephraim and Syria had allied and were coming against him. And Isaiah said, cool it, they aren't going to prevail, I'm going to take care of it. So that's the king we're talking about, Ahaz. So in the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. So the rod that struck Philistia is who? I was thinking of Babylon and Assyria, because both of them came down through Philistia. 
Philistia would be the coastal region of Israel. That's where the Philistines were. And both the Assyrians and the Babylonians sort of marched all over them. So that may be the rod, or it may be under Israel they were held down. It could be the one. And what he's saying is, for from the serpent's root shall come forth an adder. In other words, the rod that struck you is broken, but don't rejoice because the root that's left will bring forth an adder, which is another snake, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. So where do we know about flying, fiery serpents? In the desert, in the Torah, Book of Numbers. And a flying, fiery serpent, by the way, is a dragon. There are, in fact, animals that do spout fire and flame and, and uh, steam. There's some beetle that catches its prey by heating up water and shooting a jet of boiling water at it, knocking them down and eating them. Yeah, there are animals that, that do that, literally spit fire. And in the desert, in the book of Numbers, there are flying, fiery serpents. And a flying, fiery serpent in all of the literature of the world is a dragon. The idea that Orientals would have dragons and so forth, and that something mythological about them is just absurd. In fact, if you look at a dictionary from maybe Boswell or Johnson's time in England, I don't remember the era, and it has under dragon, rare now. But, you know, you have the St. George and the dragon, so the idea that there would have been flying fiery serpents in recorded memory is unremarkable. So anyway, Philista is told not to rejoice because the rod that has struck them is broken. In other words, whoever's been oppressing them has now been broken because from the root of that serpent will come an adder and the fruit will be a flying fiery serpent. Verse 30, and the firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine and your remnant I will slay. I have no idea what the firstborn of the poor will graze means. I will guess. You remember in the Torah, the firstborn of a grazing animal is sacrificed. Every firstborn of a grazing animal, which, which is a, a goat or a sheep or a cow, we're not talking antelope and deer and elk, we're talking about domesticated grazing animals, their firstborn are sacrificed. They belong to the Lord. Firstborn of the poor, I'm not sure what that means. It could certainly mean the firstborn animal of someone who is poor will graze, which means they're not. I have no idea. So the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant I will slay. And this is what we're talking about Philista. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, Melt in fear, O Philista, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messenger of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. So the idea the smoke comes out of the north, we're talking about invasion. So when the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and everybody else comes down through Israel that come out of the north. The smoke coming out of the north and there is no straggler in his ranks, which is to say it is a disciplined army. 
This is not a migration invasion like we're getting on the southern border where it stretches out for miles and miles and days and days. These folks are packed up in a military unit, there's no stragglers, and they're coming down from the north. So I am going to stop there because we're going to change subject in chapter 15. So we've dealt with Babylon, we've dealt with Assyria, we've dealt with Philistia. The next thing we're going to do is deal with Moab. Because what we're doing is Philistia, as I say, is a bit player. Big players are the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, the Assyrian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire. Philistia is peripheral. Moab is peripheral. Edom is peripheral. And what he's going to do is he's going to deal with the way that these peripheral peoples handled themselves when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came down to deal with God's people. They sort of piled on and joined in the fray and came and looted and killed stragglers and did all sorts of nasty stuff.